This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Bed, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com at amica insurance we know it's more than just a car or a house it's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home when you combine auto and home insurance with amica we'll help protect it all and the more you cover the more you can save amica empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. It's that time of year, and I travel to one of my favorite shrines, the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. I didn't just walk the halls. I got the whole Babe Ruth's bat and hear all the stories behind it. I chatted with the Wizard of Oz, Hall of Famer Ozzie Smith, the legendary shortstop from the St. Louis Cardinals, and with Trevor Hoffman, one of the greatest relief pitchers of all time. Then to put all of it in context, I checked in with Eric Stroll, the man in charge of all the collections at the Hall of Fame. Finally, the woman singularly behind not just the Hall of Fame, but Cooperstown, New York itself, Jane Clark. A remarkable story of family and its generational support of a small village in New York. First up, the Wizard of Oz, Ozzie Smith. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ozzy Smith, Hall of Famer. How are you, sir? All right, Peter. How are you? I'm great. You know, every time I come to Cooperstown, uh, I, I, have, I, I tend to slow down. You know, I, I tend to take a little bit more time and read the plaques and then realize what you guys actually did. You know, <laughs> I, it, was, it was one thing for me to, to grow up watching baseball on, on my father's black and white TV. It was another thing to go to my very first game. I remember it so wild, so vividly. I was sitting behind a pole in Yankee Stadium, in the old Yankee Stadium. I couldn't see anything, but I was there. But I was there. But then again, I always used to turn on TV to watch you because, I mean, just just the flip alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's what I'm known as, and you'd be surprised, Peter. At you know, that is the most asked question: Can I still do the flip? But the second most asked question is. How did I enjoy being on The Simpsons, if you can believe that? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting the first question to be answered, Ozzy. Yes, uh, not intentionally, no. <laughs> <laughs> However, I mean, you know, people forget. I mean, you know, you, you did something amazing. I mean, you were able to get balls that nobody could get. Um, and, I mean, playing shortstop is, is, I happen to think, is the toughest position in baseball, only because when that ball gets hit, you don't have much time to react. No, it's um, it, it's a very unique position, but it was one that I I, I felt like I was born to play. Uh, people ask me all the time, you know, did I play another position? Um, no, I never played any other infield position. It was always there, and um, I just had the – they called me a rug rat, you know. I just had the snows <laughs> for, for being where the ball was, and – uh, there's no book that says you have to do it a certain way. So I did it my way. And that was diving and, and flipping and, and all those things. But I, I think I played at a time, Peter, where there were no restrictions and you truly enjoyed what you did. I think we, we, we 
if we had to be, if we were only going to make a hundred dollars, we were going to be the best hundred dollar players that we could be. And um, I, I know the guys make a lot more money these days. Oh, you, you've no, you've noticed that, huh? You've noticed. I that. noticed it. Yes, uh, I think we've all noticed that. <laughs> uh, but but I think we played at a time where guys truly enjoyed and loved what it was that they did. I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that when you played, you played for the love of the game. Today, we got a lot of CPAs at shortstop. That's right. <laughs> a lot of CPAs and. A, and, and, and by God, we have a lot of numbers. Exactly. And bottom line is those numbers are a little daunting, but let's talk about your numbers. You know, it's not just what you did at shortstop. You stole 580 bases. Yeah, I mean, that was all part of it. I, I think for us in our era, it was to be as well-rounded a player as we could be. You know, we didn't want to be one-dimensional players. You can be a one-dimensional player today and still be very, very successful. Um but it was all part of, of, of what made you as a player to be able to say, uh, if you start your career, and for me, uh, being a middle infielder who didn't hit home runs, you come in with that moniker of being all glove and no hit. Well, you know, the challenge at that point becomes to be at the end of your career as good an offensive player as you are a defensive player, being able to blend those two things together. And, you know, I, I had many conversations with Tony Gwynn, and Tony Gwynn's goal as great a hitter as he was to was to win himself a gold glove at some point in time and so um he was certainly able to do that and i won myself a silver slugger at, at <laughs> one point in time in my career yeah you, you, you know mission you, accomplished yeah you know you weren't known initially for your batting average but the point is you increased it you actually increased it yeah, I mean, you worked on it i i mean that was the goal the goal was to be as well-rounded as i could be and not be a one-dimensional player and i didn't think uh, that I was a one-dimensional player, but you know, once you once you get that tag, it's it's tough to shake. But when at the end of my career, I think people looked at me as much more than just a defensive player. You know, I, I go back to your days in San Diego, but your life really changed when they traded you to the Cardinals. Yeah, it did. Um, it was the um, it, it was the move that that elevated me uh, from just just being that no hit. Uh, uh, defensive guy. Uh, when I got here, I started learning what the art of hitting was, or what I, what I what I wanted to try and be as an offensive player. And Whitey Herzog put me with guys like Chuck Hiller and Dave Ricketts and Hal Lanier. And you now I spent a lot of time in the batting cages, and I, I still have calluses from those days of hitting in the, <laughs> hit, hit, hitting off of a tee and and all those things. But Peter, it's all about loving the process, and and I love the process. Hey, listen, ba based on my batting average, trust me, you're legendary. But the, <laughs> you know, you retired in 1996. You were elected and inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2002. You know, it's something that everybody aspires to, but until it actually happens, you don't really, you really can't get your arms around it, can't you? No, you can, and I don't think that the guys that that, that make it. There are very few guys that I've ever heard say, you know, hey, I played the game because I I wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. The guys played the game because they loved it, and they played it to the best of their ability. And all of those things, if you're doing your job every day, all of those other things take care of themselves. And uh, for me, it was going out there and being the very best Ozzie Smith that I could be every day. And if I was the very best Ozzie Smith that I could be every day and walk away from there and say to myself, did you or were you the best you could be today? That answer for me for 19 years was yes. So now, whatever came after that, you know, it just, it, it, it was a, a natural happening. And so, you know, I gave it all, all that I had every day. And I didn't leave the game feeling that 
I cheated myself or I cheated the people that paid their money to come see me play every day. All right, so I've got to ask you this question. Every hitter gets a question of what was the one pitcher you couldn't hit, right? But I'm not going to ask you yeah. that question. But I'm not going to ask you that question. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, 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 no. It's it's a it, it's it, it's okay because I played at a time when you had the pitchers the likes of Nolan Ryan, Fergie Jenkins, Tom Seaver, Woody Fryman, Jerry Kuzman, Steve Carlton. The list goes on and on. You know, so to be able to say that I came up at a time when pitching was as great as it was, and to be able to say that my lifetime batting average was 262. Um, I, I, I think it speaks to the hard work and the dedication that I put into it. And it gives me a feeling of great accomplishment because they weren't just guys that threw hard. They were guys who could throw up and down, in and out, change speeds. And, and that's what I had to learn as a hitter, you know. So as a student, I, I, I feel like I got a lot accomplished from an offensive standpoint because I had to face some of the game's greatest. All right. So was there one pitcher that when you got up to bat, you went, oh, no. Well, you know, there was I was a contact hitter, so there wasn't anybody that I was really afraid of as far as throwing the ball by me or whatever. But getting hits, you know, sometimes you can you can face somebody and and hit them good, but not get hit. And that guy for me was a guy by the name of Dave, David Palmer, who pitched for uh, the Montreal Expos. You know, uh, he was that guy that I knew that I could probably hit the ball, but I just never got hits off of him. And I just had to accept that and move on. <laughs> All right, now let now let me now let me flip it around. Out in the field, was there one player when he got up to bat that you went, "This is going to be tough." Tony Gwynn, no doubt. I mean, when you have a player who has the ability that Tony has, and I think in the American League it was Wade Boggs, guys that can move the ball, which makes what's happening now so it's crazy when you talk about a shift. You try and shift on a Tony Gwynn or Wade Boggs, man, they, oh, they'd make a, a better living, let me say that, you know, because they were guys who could already hit and had great back control. And uh, Tony Gwynn, you know, what I had to do with him was just try and make him start thinking a little bit, you know, because if I stand here, he hits it over here. If I stand there, he hits it over here. So it, it was one of those things where I was constantly moving because he had such great back control and, he could hit for power, too, and one of the best hitters I've ever played and one of the toughest to defense. So what you're telling me is that when he got up to bat, you were doing a shift every 14 seconds. Every 14 seconds. I was not standing in the same place because <laughs> he, had, he was that good, Peter. So when people come to the Hall of Fame, what do you want them to see? What do you want them to take away from it? Well, uh, the, the history, the, the the total history. Now, you may come there to see the Cardinals or you may come to see the Dodgers or the Yankees or, or whatever, but it's the, um, it, it's the conglomeration of all of the greatness that has gone into it. It's, it's the melting pot of what base, the best that baseball has to offer. And it's not just the, the playing on the field, but it, it's the executives. It's people like uh, the great Buck O'Neill, um, it, it's the history uh, that I think that that people have the uh, ability to uh, that, that they're exposed to when they come to the Hall of Fame that really, really blows your mind if you're a baseball fan. And of course, it's all about the storytelling. Everywhere you walk, there's another story to be told. So I got to ask you, what's the story that you want to be told about you? Well, I, I wanted to be told that, you know, I, I, I wasn't the biggest. I didn't have the greatest arm. Um, 
I didn't hit for power, but I played the game the right way. I played the game in a manner that was entertaining to people and um, people didn't feel that when they came to see me perform or play that they ever got cheated. You know, whether they're a Cub fan, a Dodger fan, Yankee fan, Chicago White Sox fan, they were entertained. My thanks to Ozzy. You know, whenever I go to Cooperstown, I end up buying back all the baseball cards my mother once threw away. And apart from that being a continuing source of sorrow, there's all the history that still remains inside the Hall of Fame. The custodian of all that, a guy who has one of the best jobs ever, is Eric Stroll. Eric, welcome. Peter, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, let's talk about it. You know, it's 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 everything from the dirt from stadiums, right? You guys still got and get the dirt? Yeah. Usually that's from World Series. Uh, yeah. Something really momentous, like when Boston won for the first time in forever and broke the curse of the Bambino, we made sure to get uh, dirt from the pitching mound. So, we'll get dirt from various uh, momentous events. But the collection is so wide-ranging. I've been here almost 24 years, and I'm still amazed at the variety and depth and breadth of both the library and the museum collection. And of course, you have uh, stuff in the collection for, for when history is made for really great things, and a couple of them that for things that were controversial, right? Yeah, sure. So um, we have what you would expect if you came to see the Hall of Fame. You have the, the original Museum. baseball. We have the Doubleday Baseball. The Nelson Doubleday Baseball. Right, yeah. Um, which, of course, is uh, the first artifact that we ever accessioned into the museum. Accession is the official term you use when a museum takes uh, control of something and puts it into their official holdings and their catalog. Um, so that was the first thing that was accessioned in 1937, the year after the first election. Um, and we have... When you say the year after the first election, to the Hall of Fame. Yes, the first yeah. Hall of Fame uh, induction right. uh, election for uh, the first five um, guys who got in in 1936. So we have, I think, what you'd expect to see when you come to the museum. We have um, stuff from between the lines, right? The artifacts from some of the greatest um, moments in the history of the game. Give me an example. um, Okay, so Babe Ruth, we have a whole exhibit on Babe Ruth, right? Um, We have... um, his bat that he used to hit his 60th home run in 1927, which was himself keep setting the single season record. That was the one then that lasted until 1961. When and Roger, Roger with the asterisk. Right, with the asterisk, because he played in a different number of games. Um, so, But in that exhibit, you'll find all sorts of things, whether it's stuff uh, related to him in his youth, um, whether it's other famous bats, balls and gloves. You know, he... He is uh, widely known, of course, as being a great pitcher before he became famous as being a great slugger. And that's been uh, a topic of great discussion this year with the Angels, um, Otani, um, who's been kind of doing both. Um, and a lot of which you never expect to see. No, and a lot of. What was the last time we saw a pitcher who could hit? Yeah, no, very rare that they do both equally well. Um, we have a. Uh, a very famous bat on display in the Ruth exhibit um, that also comes from the year of 1927. And it is, uh, we call it the famous notched bat. So if you look at the bat, you have the trademark. Um, This is a Louisville Slugger. Every bat has its brand. Louisville Slugger is probably the most famous trademark, the most famous bat. When you look at that, he actually used a pen knife of some sort to carve a hash mark um, for each home run he hit with the bat until he broke it. This was that same year that he hit 60 home runs in 1927. He hit 28 of his 60 home runs with one bat before breaking it. 
which is it, which just staggers my mind. I mean, we think about how many times people change bats, break bats. You couldn't bats. do that today. No, and, or, and balls too, right? Uh, a ball comes out if it gets a touch of dirt on it, and they, and they bring it out of the game. So equipment certainly lasted a lot longer in the game. And so that is, um, that's a very famous bat um, because it's a story of Babe Ruth hitting home runs and how he personalized that. And that's a big bat too. That's probably about 36 inches long, about 38 ounces in weight. A 36 ounce inch bat? 30, wow. 36 inches, yeah, 38 ounces in weight. Now that's pretty heavy. A typical bat today 34. that a player would use, probably even lower than that. Yeah, really? Yeah, probably about 32, anywhere between 31 and 33. Um, I think that players... Talking about the evolution of bats is a very interesting thing. I'm assuming they want uh, less inches on the bat because they want to be able to get around faster, only because the pitches are coming in faster. Certainly, that has something to do with it. When, when you go back to the beginning of the history of the game, the the idea was, for the most part, pick up the heaviest bat I think I can swing. That's and, what I used to do. And that way I'll hit the ball farther um, as far as they can. That shows a... a Probably a lack of understanding of physics a little bit because... And now you know why I failed physics in high school. Thank you. <laughs> because force is mass times velocity. So it's not just the weight of the bat. It's how fast the bat is traveling, right? Right. So if you lower the weight of the bat, but you swing it faster, you're accomplishing the same thing. And it's easier to control a lighter bat in your hands than it is a heavier bat. So when you start getting to you know, the era of the 30s and 40s and guys like Ted Williams and Stan Musial... You know, they're, they're, they're like, well, why would I go up there using a 38-ounce bat? Let me use a 32, 33-ounce bat, and I'll swing it faster. So what was abnormal then for them has now become the standard. I would say a 35-ounce bat now would be, considered, would be considered heavy. 38, of course, extremely heavy but to today's players. But if you go back, I mean, we have, like, Honus Wagner bats in the collection that are 48 ounces. And, I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's like a pound more than, like, what, what, uh, what um, Mike Trout would use. Wow. All right, so speaking of bats, where's the pine tar bat? That's on display in our whole new ball game exhibit. You have it, huh? Yeah, it's actually on loan from the Brett family, but it's been here uh, almost uh, since that event occurred. Um, that is probably one of the most iconic moments of 1980s. I remember him running out of that dugout. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, the of, of baseball of that era because of the video that comes along with that, right? So prior to the the idea of a baseball being taped and you getting to watch it on TV, which is the modern baseball that we all we all grew up right. with, you only read about baseball. Um, but now we had these indelible images, whether it's Carlton Fisk waving the ball fair in the 75 World Series, right, or, um, or, or um, George Brett freaking out and running out of the dugout after they overturn his home run uh, to beat the Yankees and, and uh, win that game. Um, so that was uh, an interesting moment in baseball history. And talking about things, weird things like pine tar. Yeah. You know. Um, now, can I make a boast about my collection? Oh, yeah, I love it. I have it. Well, first of all, I should say that as you walk down the streets in Cooperstown, and this is not about my collection, it's about my frustration. There used to be a sign in one of the stores saying, we have all the baseball cards your mother threw out. Well, my mother threw out all my baseball cards. And I had, I had a Willie Mays and a Mantle and a Cepeda and a, and a, and a Brock and, a, and a, Her- a Hank Aaron. I had them all. You and millions of others. I right? know. And why did she do that? <laughs> However, I've made up for it. Hanging on my wall, I have an autographed picture uh, from the 1986 uh, World Series. Uh, Mookie Wilson and... Bill Buckner with the shot of the ball going under Buckner's legs. And that was that. I'm a Mets fan. I was so going to say, I'm gathering you're a Mets fan. I mean, do you know why I'm a Mets fan? Because no. when I grew up in New York City, I didn't trust anybody who wore pinstripes. <laughs> I just didn't trust them. And the Mets were like, you know, they were like neighborhood guys. you right, know. Because right. the, the first team that I saw was 69. 
they were neighborhood guys. They were they were like there was a ragtag group of people, right? Yep. Uh, and I, I remember Jimmy Pearsall, right? Played for the Mets. Yep. Remember what he did when he hit his hundredth home run? I don't. He ran around the bases oh, backwards. backwards. Yes. Yeah. Right. I right. mean, come on. You know, that's you don't do that today. The '69 Mets. What a great Tom uh, Seaver. Yeah, and Nolan Ryan's on that team. Yeah. Uh, what a what a great surprise. I mean, I always talk about the '69 World Series when you're talking about how baseball. I don't know. To me, is like on other sports. You have you know the Mets have no business winning that that series against Baltimore right. and the team that you Baltimore mean against Boston. Built. Um. No, in 1960. Oh, 69. 69. Excuse me. Right. I'm thinking yeah, 86. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah. 80, well, it's 86 kind of too. Yeah. Yeah, right. But they had no business. Let's um, face it. They had no business. <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, but that's why you play the games. And not only uh, did they win, they won in six, right? I know. Um, and in 86, they won in seven. And I remember watching that uh, with my friends and family. And what a, what a crazy And of course, I must tell you, if you're a baseball fan, even if you're not a baseball fan, uh, one of my favorite shows on television is Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. Yep. It's the episode he did with Bill Buckner as a guest. Okay. And I encourage you to find it. I'm not going to tell you what happens in the show. You don't see it coming. It's too funny. And who makes a guest star appearance in the show? Mookie Wilson. <laughs> he had the whole gang in there. And See, th- these baseball moments become popular culture. Yeah. Um, and so whether it's Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm, you can see the Larry David theme there. Um, or uh, almost any other way that baseball seeps into what becomes our common language, whether it's just the way we talk, whether it's what we wear. I mean, everybody wears baseball caps. And by the way, for people who don't know the Buckner story, it was the sixth game of the World Series, played at Chase Stadium. The Mets were behind. Boston was going to win the game. Mookie Wilson comes to bat. It's a small ground ball to first base side. I could have fielded it. Yep. And, and Buckner was a great athlete. Right? And he was a big slugger. He's great. It goes under his legs. Mookie gets to first base. The tying run scores. The next guy comes up. The Mets win the game, forcing it into a game seven, which the Mets win. And it ruined Bill Buckner's life forever. First of all, one of the things that, other than the Bill Buckner stuff, which to me, I just, I love that story. In fact, here's a little known story about Buckner. So he couldn't go back to Boston. There were death threats against him because they blamed him for losing the series, right? Which you could make that claim because he would have wrapped up right then and there. Right. Well, as luck would have it, the first exhibition game of the next year's season in 87 is playing at Shea Stadium, the Mets and the Red Sox. And Buckner gets up to bat, standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> Not the kind you probably want, but yes. But I do recommend that Curb Your Enthusiasm series with Larry David. Hey, speaking of history, something that I saw with my dad in the 50s, right, on our black and white TV when I was maybe 10 years old, was the famous Who's on First with Abbott and Costello. And you have that here. Yes, we have it. We basically have it uh, running on, well, it's it's on demand. We used to have it running as a loop. Now you just go up and you press the button with today's technology. I'll be pressing that button a lot. Yeah. yeah and it, uh, it's currently housed over in our library atrium. So there's some place that we can put out some benches for people to sit. And my offices are above there. Most of the curatorial and exhibits and library staff's offices are there. And it's a kind of an open area atrium. So we can hear whenever people are playing it. And it's being played all the time. Of course. And I, something about it that to this day, and obviously it's, well, it's the wordplay. It's the camaraderie between those two guys. You know, that was they did that as a vaudeville act long before it was ever put into film. It did a radio. Yeah, right. It started on radio, yeah. but they did it on stage before it even you know before they even did it live for any sort of audience uh, except one that was physically present in front of them. And 
it, it's it doesn't. I guess it doesn't surprise me anymore. The amount that people get enjoyment they get out of watching that is endless, and it could be. Well, have, you have three generations watching. You have grandparents, the parents, and the and the kids or grandkids, right? And they're all there guffawing and laughing because they can't get enough of it. And if I, we, I'm, I'm assuming you can find it on YouTube somewhere. Yes, yep. And it was done on the naughty '90s, which is the name of one of the uh, Abbott Costello movies, and I think it's still available on DVD that way if you go and look for the naughty '90s. I'm not sure if it's currently produced, but if you search on Amazon or somewhere, I'm sure you can find it. If we take that offline, for example, we move it from one part of the museum to another, or we're doing maintenance and we don't have it on available. People get upset. People get upset. They get really upset. I laughingly compare it to the scene in Frankenstein where the mobs come approach the castle with torches because they, you know, we get we get all sorts of angry people that are like, "Where's the Abbot Costello?" I mean, we have all this amazing stuff here, and they get upset when that's not a, when that's not available. I know, but it, you got to see it again. I mean, you, I can't get enough of it, honestly. Yeah. What's the biggest surprise exhibit you have here that people are not expecting? Well, I think it's partially, like I said before, people expect the stuff between the lines, right? So a lot of the exhibits are baseball in the field and the greatest moments. But we also like to talk about how baseball and American history and American culture are intertwined. Baseball and America grew up together, and it's very important for people to understand. Anything that you can want to learn about in American history or culture, you can find in microcosm in baseball. So some of our more culturally relevant exhibits, like Ideals and Injustices, which is the history of black baseball from the 19th century to the present, which mirrors the- The Negro Leagues. Right which mirrors the fight for uh, civil rights and equality and on that story, which is obviously going on to this moment. Yeah, because some people, of course, will always remember Jackie Robinson yep. and how what, what Branch Rickey did, but you got to go before that. Yeah, go all the way back. Uh, you know, There was integrated baseball in the late 19th century. There were two African-American major leaguers prior to Jackie Robinson, but, but they were done by 1884 in the major leagues and then into the minor leagues. Owners made an agreement called the Gentleman's Agreement, and it was anything but... Yeah in 1887 to not sign any new contracts with any black players. So slowly after 1887, after those contracts ran out, then there was no black players playing anywhere in any levels of, of organized baseball. Um, so they formed their own leagues, right? So the history of Negro Leagues and barnstorming um, and what they what they had to go through and, and sacrifice to be able to play the game they loved um, mirrors uh, the African-American experience, of course, throughout their entire history in this country. But baseball can be very instructive. And, you know, baseball was integrated before any other facet of American life, including the military. So it was a great experiment. Had Jackie Robinson failed, it could have changed the trajectory, certainly would have, of the entire probably civil rights movement. So culturally related things like the Negro Leagues, we have a whole exhibit on women in baseball, which is very popular about women's connection to the game as players, as owners, as journalists, as um, executives, um, just their role in the game. Um, and then things like, as long as we're talking about things not on the field, but things that people like, like baseball cards. That's our newest permanent. Please exhibit. don't bring that up again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and our shoebox treasures. Uh, By the way, the exhibit. worst chewing gum I've ever had. Oh the, yeah. The, oh, the worst. The app. You could smell the chemicals. But the point is, you get it for the cards. You didn't do it for the gum. Yeah, and it used to be the exact opposite. You know, baseball cards be- began as the add-on. The pr- they were the premium that you put into a product, and so um, famously, of course, associated with tobacco in the 19th century. 
um, tobacco packs were soft, soft packages. And so they had to have cardboard inserts to help reduct and the that's packaging. How they so they would use, hey, let's not waste this space. They would use it for advertising. And then some, the earliest baseball cards were little cards that would fit in packs of cigarettes. Um, and then in the teens, you get gum and candy and all sorts of things. You flip the script after World War II when the, when the card industry really booms again. And then you get to companies like Topps, which is the modern king of cards, right, which was founded in 51 and their first real famous set, 52, including the Mickey Mantle rookie card, their rookie card. He had a, he had a Bowman card out in 1951. Number seven. Yeah. Where the card becomes the main product and the gum becomes the afterthought. So instead of working on the candy, they're like, well, you know, heck with that. Let's work on the design, the evolution of the card and what kids want in a card. And we just throw in this gum. My thanks to Eric. Even if you're a big baseball fan, the name Trevor Hoffman might not ring a bell, but it should. In the annals of baseball history, there have been very few relief pitchers like Hoffman. At one point, the 2018 inductee into the Hall of Fame recorded more saves than any other player, and the man who broke his record, Mariano Rivera of the Yankees. But imagine this, as a San Diego Padre, Hoffman once had three consecutive saves against the Dodgers. That in itself, an amazing feat. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Trevor, thanks so much for joining me. Peter, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's talk about this. You know, when I was growing up, so now, now I get to date myself. When I when I was growing up, pitchers pitched complete games. I mean, you, you know, if, if you got pulled, that was like you had really failed, you know. Guys were going all nine innings. Those days are, are now long gone. But in a way, you started it because when you came in, you were there to save the games. You were there as the relief pitcher. You were the star of the bullpen. And But you just didn't, you know, save a couple of games. Oh, my goodness, did you save the games? I mean, that's really what got you into the hall, right? Well, I was, I was pretty lucky to have, honestly, the opportunity to play for a manager that understood communication between he and I being very important, and that was Bruce Bochy. Um, I think Dennis Eckersley and Tony La Russa kind of gave the blueprint on how to manage a one-inning guy and to have him be able to go back-to-back games if needed. And so I think with Boach, we refined that relationship and there was a, a trust that developed that I, I, if, if I wasn't 100% and I told him I was and I went out there and, and I don't know if they failed, but I didn't have my best stuff, then we'd, ha- we'd sit down, we'd have a conversation like, this can't happen, it's a detriment <laughs> to the team. And so uh, I, th- I think uh, a lot of my success really was based off of not only great personnel in the bullpen with me that handed the baton uh, through the through the bullpen to, to get to the end of the game, the, the great play defensively and offensively with my teammates, but uh, ultimately with my manager and pitching coach uh, had a lot to do with it. Of course, we're, we're not talking just a few saves. In one season, you did 40 saves. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I, I was lucky to have those type of opportunities. You know, again, you, you have to make sure that you stay fit. You, you stay yeah. ready, um, and a lot, a lot of that has to do with the, you know, doing your 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 daily work, even though you might not get into a ball game. You know, th- at one point in in 1996, 
you saved the final three games back to back to back against the LA Dodgers, and that got you to their first division title in twelve years. We're talking about, of course, the San Diego Padres. Yeah, that was that was a, that was a, a fun fun weekend. You know, fortunately, the two teams both knew they were headed to the postseason. It's just which, which capacity, whether it was going to be as a division champion or a wild card participant. And so there was a lot on line. And being the little brother south of Los Angeles, we, we kind of wanted to try and uh, flex our muscles and and it was going to take a sweep. And so you're right, to have an opportunity to to go up to Los Angeles and, and sweep the Dodgers in their home park and to get uh, three consecutive saves to, to win the division was was a big highlight of mine for sure. Of course, one of the other Hall of Famers, and I saw his plaque uh, uh, earlier this week, was Raleigh Fingers. You, of course, who could forget Raleigh and his mustache, right? But, but, but the thing is, you actually surpassed him with your 109th save to pass his all-time record. Yeah, Raleigh was a mainstay in San Diego for a bit, and uh, you know his his expertise was was very good. And in, in the time that he was in San Diego, a little side note and a funny story: getting a chance to see him this past September for the induction. You know, when we're when everyone's wearing masks in in certain venues and things like that it takes a toll on a, a person that has a pretty sharp mustache like Raleigh so he was a little frustrated with some mask wearing because it was doing a little damage to his mustache <laughs> but of course at, at the end of the day it all gets down to ERA right well it's it's for me it's safe percentage you know I, I, there's some there's amazing minuscule ERAs that are out there uh, in the reliever cores uh, as we speak and in in the past but uh I think the biggest thing for me was when I was given the opportunity to lock down a game, to keep the wind in our sails as a team. I think it was very important to have, um, you know, the, the save percentage be as high as it possibly could. How has pitching changed? I mean, when I said at the beginning, you know, I, I, I grew up when guys pitched complete games. The whole dynamic has changed, hasn't it? I think that they, we've tinkered a little bit in that regard in a sense that, uh, you know, starters aren't asked to go as deep in the ball games, uh, you know, I think it would be, you'd be hard pressed to, to get a ball away from Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver and uh, the likes of, of those greats, you know, when it comes time to the third time around or they're sneaking up on 95, hundred pitches. That just wasn't something that we watched growing up. I agree with you. And of course you had a, an all time great all star star season at the age of 41. Who gets to say that? <laughs> Uh, to reach 41, that was kind of a neat little milestone, but you're right. It, uh, it doesn't happen too often at that age, especially these days in the game with the, with the talent getting so much younger and younger. All right, so here's my question. You broke Raleigh Finger's record. Let's talk about the guy who broke yours, and that was Mariano Rivera from the Yankees. Yeah, you know, we, I, I felt blessed to have the opportunity to kind of play in the same era as, as Mariano and honestly get a chance to, to witness his work being on the West Coast and his games finishing up about the time that we were getting ready to start. And, you know, just the way he handled himself in New York uh, with the brightest lights, and the biggest stage, and just did it with such class that, uh, you know, he kind of set a bit of a, a tone and that we'd kind of go back and forth. And so it was great to be able to play in his era. And obviously his career numbers speak for themselves. And it, uh, it's nice to share a spot in, in Cooperstown with him. All right, so I'm not asking this question. One of my producers is making me ask this question. When you look, <laughs> when you look at Mariano Rivera, is he the is he the goat? I think so. He he he, he gone in 100 uh, percent induction. I, I think his exploits in the postseason speak for themselves as well. And the five rings don't hurt either. So you, know, you, <laughs> you could. There's a lot of people that like to make that argument, but uh, in my eyes, I think he was the greatest closer of all time. Well, I have to ask this question because. 
We are doing, this is called Ion Travel, and you're doing 162 games a year. You're on planes a lot. So what was your best frequent flyer tip <laughs> about how you managed all the air travel? Yeah, you know, I, honestly, being at one of the coasts, the travel was maybe a little bit longer when we would go east or the central versus being in the central and going either east or west. So some of our flights got a little bit longer, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was an opportunity to one, you know, the cell phone was starting to come into play, but you, you, you'd check out. You get at 35,000 feet, you'd have your teammates captured, you'd be able to hang out and listen to music. But I think the most important thing was that you hydrate. You know, you're, 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 you're dehydrating in the, in the, in being up in the air and you're in, you're in the air for long periods of time and you have to perform at a level and you got to make sure your muscles are hydrated. So it's very important to stay hydrated, but it was equally as fun to hang out with my teammates. Well, on those flights, Trevor, did you ever say, okay, we have a long flight today. I am not going to perform well tomorrow. Don't put me in, coach. <laughs> no, that wasn't, uh, that was never the case. Uh, it's part about really about being a professional and doing the things you need to do to, to answer the bell the next day. And what did you eat on the plane? Tell the truth. Yeah, we were pretty lucky. We got pretty solid meals, whether it, you know, sometimes after a, a day game, you know, the neat thing is when we did travel East, it was always on an off day. So we got a chance to spend the evening with our families after the day game at home. And then our off day was travel. And, you know, we, we hopped on the plane about 10 o'clock and, We'd have a nice, you know, chicken and, and, and rice meal on the flight and had plenty of uh, beverages for the, the off day and really, really were spoiled, to be honest with you, and, you know, the ice cream and things like that for dessert. So don't, don't feel too bad about the travel that we did have to make. It was, it was done first class. Well, speaking of travel, for those people traveling to the Hall of Fame, when they walk in there, as you walk in there, what do you want them to feel? What do you want them to see? And what do you want them to learn? Well, I, I know what they're going to feel. And it's not want. It's, it's going to be a sense of awe. I think just the, the pristine of the village and how Jane has captured and kept and maintained that, that vibrant and, and, and walk back in time feel as you stroll the main street, you stroll the museum uh, out to Doubleday uh, Field and even to the uh, sports complex. Just all the, all the venues are fantastic. We have the for good fortune of staying at the Otisaga Hotel, and we get a chance to have one of the most pristine and beautiful views of all time out the back, uh, overlooking the golf course in Lake Otisaga. So very special uh, in Cooperstown, and I know everyone that would get a chance to get there would just be in awe of all the great sights. Well, let me ask you a personal question for you. When you walk in there, what's the biggest surprise that greeted you in the hall? Honestly, just to be able to rub elbows with so many of the, the game's greats. Um, you you kind of pinch yourself that, you know, I, I remember being able to walk into a, a, a big league locker room as a young boy when my brother Glenn was playing. I'd pinch myself and be in awe and seeing, you know, the likes of Carl Yastrzemski and Carlton Fisk and Dwight Evans and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you make your first all-star game and your peer group, you're looking around going, do I belong in this room? And you finish a career and you, you get a chance to put a bow on it you look up and you're on stage with Dave Winfield and Tony Gwynn and Reggie Jackson and, and, and gentlemen and men like that. And you just kind of have to shake your head and go, is this really a happening or is this a dream? Well, you know, there's an old Groucho Marx line that does not apply to you, but I'll share it with you anyway. He once said, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. I think we'll make an exception in your case. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but I understand where he's coming from. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't play the game. You see, he, he only watched the game. <laughs> My thanks to Trevor. There are legends in the Hall of Fame, but Jane Clark is the legend of Cooperstown, New York herself, and the Hall of Fame. Her grandfather founded the Hall of Fame and worked to preserve and conserve the village of Cooperstown, a task she continues today. 
She truly is all things Cooperstown, and perhaps the singular reason why the village remains a small, manageable, and magical destination. Welcome, I'm welcoming you to your Hall of Fame. <laughs> Peter, thank you, and we welcome you to Cooperstown in the Hall of Fame. So happy to have you back. You know, people think that, uh, you know, we all know that, the, or maybe some people know the Nelson Doubleday story about where it was discovered, where it was invented. Can you tell me the real story? Well, my grandfather, Stephen Clark, was an art collector, loved Cooperstown, loved art, loved philanthropy, and was great friends with Ford Frick, who in various stages of his career in baseball was president of the National League, commissioner of baseball, and also loved art, which is where their relationship came together. And Mr. Frick thought that it would be a fantastic idea for my grandfather to start the first sports hall of fame in the United States here in Cooperstown. And they started talking about this in the early 30s. Meanwhile, uh, myth had it, and I say myth seriously, that Abner Doubleday had invented Cooperstown, had invented baseball, excuse me, in Cooperstown. And his family had a trunk full of, I will just call it stuff, <laughs> balls, all, well, whatever, stuff. My grandfather purchased it took it home to my grandmother in their summer home up here, who took one look at musty balls, gloves, and I'm sure other stuff flying out of this trunk, and said, please, not in my house. So he gave it to Village Hall, which is right across the street from us here at the Hall of Fame, to display on their mantelpiece all of Abner Doubleday's things and stuff from early days of baseball. And I would say, in part, due to believing that myth, uh, was very serious in his conversations with Ford Frick. And in 1935, construction began on the main wing of the Hall of Fame. We've expanded since then, obviously. Uh, but the rest is history. And it all started from a musty baseball that my grandmother seriously didn't want on her. And where, and where is that musty baseball today? Uh, we still have it here at the museum. Wow. But Cooperstown itself doesn't start with baseball. It starts way before that. It starts way before that. Founded by uh, William Cooper, 1790. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper, the famous writer's father. The last father, of the Mohegans. Last right? of the Mohegans, uh, which the book was written based on the history of here in Cooperstown and the lake. And the lake is Otsego Lake. It's 11 miles long. It's absolutely beautiful. And James Fenimore Cooper called it the glimmer glass in his novels. And that's why we're going to get to glimmer glass in a little bit. But the interesting thing is most Americans still do not realize the Indian impact in the state of New York. Uh, you know, they think that the Indians were out in the wild, wild west. If you take a look at all the towns in Long Island, I mean, they're all Indian names, right? Mm -hmm. They Ron are. Ronkonkoma, Massapequa, right? And upstate New York as well. And didn't the Indians sell the island of Manhattan? Well, let's not call it, I wouldn't call it a sale. <laughs> <laughs> let's, not, let's not reinvent history again. Yeah. yeah, but bottom line is that's how Cooperstown got its name from, from, that, from that family. From that family, from the Cooper family who came up here in the seven, late 1700s. Now, this morphs over, of course, into your family foundation, the Clark Foundation, in terms of what you've done to preserve this town. Because anybody who drives around Cooperstown is going to find a very short drive. You walk. It's, it's, it's a wonderful place to walk. And what you realize is 
there are no high-rise buildings. There are, you know, other than uh, a, a, an iconic and famous hotel called the Otisaga, uh, there's, it's, it's not really overly developed, which is great. Abs- you know, my family arrived here in 1830. Uh, we've been here ever since. And Cooperstown has always been very small, very unique. And I think it's due in part to my grandfather's vision of wanting to create for Cooperstown something that would not only make it economically viable going forward, but would also make it special in terms of preservation and conservation. So there were two missions economic viability, and a very heavy emphasis on preservation and conservation. And that was not only with the land surrounding Cooperstown, but within Cooperstown, and making sure that its architectural history maintained itself, remained relevant. And that's why you don't see tall buildings and things like that. Cooperstown was historic, districted, 1980, 1981, and the lake was historic districted, and we were the first his- lake to be historic districted in so New no York State. So no development on the lake. Not going forward, very strict guidelines, and that was done in 1999. Wow, amazing. And, of course, the question I have to ask you is, what did you know about baseball? Well, I have a very, I would say, maybe peculiar history with baseball, <laughs> Because I did not grow up a baseball fan, but I grew up in a family that loved the history of baseball and the beauty of baseball on the field and its role in America, because it really is such an important part of the fabric of America. And that's how I grew up, listening to that. And you have the Hall of Fame here, which, which is the mecca <laughs> of baseball. It is. And it's also where the history of the game is preserved, where the beauty of the game is exhibited. So it's all part of my background that wasn't necessarily started with a hot dog sitting in a seat at a stadium. But you've been back to the stadium since then with hot dogs. Oh, yes, many times. (laughs) (laughs) But what about the hall itself? Meaning, when people come here, I'll, I'll go back. When you come here, when you walk in, what is the exhibit that resonates with you? I think the Hall of Fame itself, simply because I know that we have 72 living Hall of Fame members today. Uh, I have known, I know all of them, and I've known a great many of them who have sadly since passed away. And to see their plaques on the wall is extremely meaningful to me because they're my friends. And I understand what my grandfather wanted to do here and I can see that he's done it. And if you watch our film, Connecting Generations, which shows in our theater upstairs, and maybe you had a chance to see it yesterday, you listen to Joe Morgan, who just looks at the ceiling and says, it's sacred ground. And I think of Joe's words, talking about how deeply meaningful the Hall of Fame is itself, to walk into it was to him, it's very special. And when you think of the work that you've done in Cooperstown, because you have the Hall of Fame, but then you have everything else around Cooperstown, right? Uh, 
and you have to preserve all that architecture. Some of it's legislatively preserved, mm -hmm. right? But you still have fights on your hands to make sure that it stays <laughs> that way. We do have fights, but they're not big fights because I think everybody in the village recognizes the village they live in and how unique it is, and they want to maintain it. I don't think you move to Cooperstown looking to change it. You move to Cooperstown because you love the village and you want to help it stay relevant within its own framework. Yeah. Now, what, what have you done? I mean, I, I walk down the street and I see these beautiful plants in the, on, on the street. Who put those plants in there? <laughs> Come on. That's my grandmother's legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Which you've maintained. Which I have maintained. Um, you have your own nursery. We have a very big horticultural operation here. And it started as, if anyone's been to Cooperstown, and certainly if you come to Cooperstown, you'll see, we have a flagpole right in the middle of Main Street. And my grandmother, in the 1930s, thought it would be very pretty to hang hanging basket at each of the lampposts on the corners by the flagpole and to plant the base of the flagpole. And she did that, and it was so well received that we are now up to, I think we hang 130 baskets on Main Street twice a year. We do geraniums in the summer, and chrysanthemums are something very relevant and easy for fall, uh, in the fall. And so it, um, it started with four hanging baskets, and now we're way up over that. And we also provide all the horticultural, uh, whether it's uh, flower beds, window boxes, to the three museums here in Cooperstown, Fenimore Art Museum, the Farmer's Museum, and here at the Hall of Fame. Uh, we also provide plant material to uh, the Clark Sports Center, to the village office buildings, and the five churches. My grandmother uh, loved going to different churches every weekend. So she spread it around. And she spread it around, and she also, she, as someone said to me, took her flowers with her. <laughs> and so twice a year we plant all five churches, tulips in the spring, geraniums in the summer. And uh, at Easter we provide them with enormous pots of lilies, and at Christmas enormous pots of poinsettias. Um, for the altar and other places in the in now, the churches. I don't know if you remember the first time I heard about you and did a story about you. It had to do with a fire at the senior citizens' home. Yes, it did. Explain, it did. Explain what happened, because you have a hotel here in town, which is one of my favorite hotels, seriously, the Otis Saga. Such great history. I just love it. Um, and you sleep every night. You have to make sure the windows are up and open, because you just want to, you just want to breathe that air coming in off the lake. But there was a fire at the senior citizens' home, and in those days, the Otisago was not year-round open. No, it wasn't. We were doing renovations at the Clara Welsh Thanksgiving Home, which is a 26-bed residential care facility that my family started ages ago, and uh, it needed some renovation. And we only had 10 residents. Uh, at that point, and we moved all 10 to the Otisaga and started the renovations. We were a week away from moving the residents back in and accepting more residents. And um, there was a contractor's error in the basement with a heater, and the heater ignited a propane line, 
and it burnt to the ground. And that was devastating, just devastating. Uh, we decided immediately to rebuild. Uh, the afternoon of the fire, I was standing on the site talking to the contractor, architects, etc., already saying, you have to start immediately. We have got to have a building here. And it's got to be a perfect building, obviously. <laughs> and, what and, happened, and what happened to the residents? And the residents, um, they were heartbroken because they were looking forward to moving back in. But I will laughingly tell you that they stopped being that heartbroken because they were able to spend another year at the Otisaga. And as you say, <laughs> Peter, it really is a lovely hotel. The food is delicious. The beds are comfortable. The air is great off the lake. So, but I remember uh, a woman, she must have been close to 100, who, would, who was one of the residents from the home who was living at the Otisaga, who would come down every afternoon and play the piano for everybody. Mm-hmm. We had wonderful moments like that. Yeah. Wonderful moments. I mean, that's, that, there's a spirit of community where a building burns down and they are immediately taken in, not just for a day or a couple of days, but for over a year. year. Wow. Amazing. So... What's the vision now that you have? Because you're fifth generation, mm-hmm. right? I am. What's the chain of command now? <laughs> Who do you leave it to? I think that our organizations, and I think I said this to you 11 years ago, uh, my answer is the same. We have great, strong organizations here and great leadership. And each organization works very hard. I make very sure that we stay relevant. And if that is continued within the leadership of each organization, Cooperstown is going to be more than fine. And of course, but the fight still goes on to make sure there's no development, that it stays the same, mm-hmm. it's preserved, not just the architecture, but the culture. Which brings me to Glimmerglass. Explain Glimmerglass. Glimmerglass meaning... The festival. Oh, the festival. I thought you were referring to the lake and James Fenimore Cooper. You can tell. I'll take both. (laughs) Glimmerglass Opera Festival has been such a wonderful addition to Cooperstown. Um, It's brought very interesting people. Uh, It's brought a national spotlight through arts and music. It, like all of us, had a very bad time during the pandemic, but rallied, pivoted, and put on some wonderful works outside this summer and developed new audiences, and we're just thrilled to have them here. And when you talk about the village all working together, we could not have pulled off our induction ceremony without the help of the Glimmerglass Opera because we had a lot of things to catch up on this summer. We had our award award ceremony, we had our induction, we split the weekends, And they gave us their theater. They designed a beautiful stage for us. And we held our award ceremony there. And we had that as the backup rain plan, should we need it, when we had our full induction ceremony, which, thank heavens, we were allowed to have outside. Uh, They're just a wonderful part of the community in absolutely every single way. And their leadership with Francesca Zambello as their artistic and general director is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And how many induction ceremonies have you attended? I've attended a lot. (laughs) I think my first I was maybe five or six years old. You've attended a lot? I've attended a lot. 
But uh, since being chairman, which began with in 2001, um, I've now done 20 induction ceremonies from the podium. And they're all emotional. They're all emotional. We all love being up there. And, and we love having so many people out in front of us. And what many people don't realize is you actually have a Hall of Fame game here. Well, we did. What happened? It, pandemic. Well, the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, it was very difficult to get two major league teams here in the middle of their season. And the facilities are not what the players today are used to. And it became difficult. The game wasn't counting. I think that they've done a wonderful job in Iowa with, with the Field of Dreams. Yeah. Because they have created. And that game counted. It counted. A historic site with the proper facilities necessary for two major league teams. But if I want to come to Cooperstown in the summer, there's still a field out there I can play on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have all sorts of teams. We have little league teams playing. We have, what should we call it, seniors masters games. Why we you, have why you restaurants. You, why are you looking at me when you mention <laughs> senior masters games? <laughs> you were doing so well, Jane. You got that point. <laughs> But what you're basically saying is anybody can come and play. Anybody can come and play. Everybody does come and play, and they have a wonderful time doing it. What's the one thing you'd like to see changed in Cooperstown or improved? I think Cooperstown is so unique that, quite frankly, Peter, and maybe I'm looking at it through rose-colored glasses and whatever, we have very little to improve, I think. We are such a unique American village. We have so many wonderful components to Cooperstown, the arts, the music, the theater, medical resources. Uh, our preservation, our conservation efforts are huge. There's some great organizations in town that work on uh, land trust issues, making sure that even the signage on Main Street is correct making sure that agriculture is highlighted. We have a fantastic farmer's market, which has won national awards. I'm, I don't know, they're natural beauty. I'm not sure we can ask for anything more. So basically, you're, you're an unabashed supporter of the perfect village of Cooperstown. I am. My thanks to Jane Clark, to Trevor Hoffman, to Eric Stroll, and Ozzie Smith. And my thanks to you for listening to this special baseball edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, and to answer all of your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just step up to the plate and log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free 
on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.